Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Rona Carroll about transgender health, managing the transition. This is part two of a two-part series, so please, if you haven't already, tune into part one so you know where we're going with this. So Rona is a specialist GP working in student health and a senior lecturer at the Department of Primary Health Care and General Practice at the University of Otago in Wellington. She has a special interest in transgender healthcare and is a member of PATHA, the Professional Association for Transgender Health Aotearoa, and is on the Education Committee. Rona provides gender-affirming hormone therapy to trans and non-binary patients and is interested in educating medical students and health practitioners in this area. Welcome, Rona. Thanks, Louise. So in this podcast, we're focusing on the physical aspects of managing the transgender patient. Taha Tanana. So Rona, gender-affirming hormone therapy includes estrogen and testosterone, and they are either used to feminize or masculinize a person's appearance by inducing the onset of secondary sexual characteristics for the appropriate gender. Can you talk us through this process, please? Sure. So gender-affirming hormone therapy, sometimes we often abbreviate it to GAPT, which is G-A-H-T, so I'm going to use that, that term today. So Best practice in providing this care has changed over time, moving away from a so-called mandatory mental health assessment towards a more informed consent model, as we discussed in our part one of this podcast, which really reframes care towards affirming gender identity and improving well-being rather than treating disease. So our New Zealand guidelines for gender-affirming healthcare are based on the WPATH guidance. That's uh, WPATH stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And a new version of their standards of care is is due out next year. But the current criteria for um, access to gender-affirming hormone treatment are that the person must meet four criteria, which are, firstly, persistent and well-documented gender dysphoria. Number two, a capacity to make a fully informed decision and to consent for treatment. Number three, the age of majority, which in New Zealand, young people are considered to be able to consent for uh, medical care if they're over 16 years old. And lastly, that if if there are any significant medical or mental health concerns present, they must be reasonably well controlled. So those are the sort of four criteria that we look at. So gender dysphoria, just to clarify, that's a term that's used to describe uncomfortable or distressing feelings that some people experience because their sex they were assigned at birth doesn't match their gender. Um, There are different ways that this can be experienced. Not everybody does experience dysphoria. And with regards to the other two criteria, the having uh, capacity and for significant mental and physical health concerns to be well controlled. If you think about it, that's something that GPs regularly make judgments about and and make assessments on. So you can see that ideally um, specialist input can be reserved for more complex situations. So what other considerations need to be made prior to initiating GET? In the first episode, we talked about the transition goals um, and the informed consent process and fertility preservation, which all need to be considered before get started. Uh, We can also ask people about their gender history, um, just in the same way that we ask about other aspects of people's medical history. And this is to hear about the patient's story in their own words, to understand more about the decision-making process which has brought them to this point. For example, commonly we hear from patients who will 
tell us about experiencing distress during puberty or telling of a time when they realised that they're that they didn't identify with, with their gender given to them at birth. It's also really important to explore what supports people have and who they've told about their gender identity and their desire to start hormone therapy. Some patients, unfortunately, risk losing support from family and friends due to their decision to start GAT, and so they may require some extra support. A mental health assessment is useful to ensure that any extra support or counselling referrals or other management can be arranged. Having mental health concerns are not a reason to withhold GAP, but we know that transgender and non-binary patients have higher rates of mental health problems, self-suicidality and substance abuse. Um, so we want to ensure our patients feeling well and has the support that they need. And you can manage any mental health concerns in the same way that you would for any other patient. We would also have a think if they've been on puberty blockers, then the paediatrician or the endocrinologist can guide the timing and the hormone protocols around that. And then a more general medical history, things like smoking status, cardiovascular disease or risk factors, history of migraines or hormone sensitive cancers. And asking about people's family history, especially around venous thromboembolism and DVT. And remembering that there are some intersex people who might present as gender diverse. And this group have some unique considerations which are not really covered here today. Let's discuss feminizing hormone therapy to start with. What physical examination and investigations do we need to consider prior to starting these types of hormones? Yeah, so before starting feminizing hormone therapy, we would take um, record a baseline blood pressure and height and weight and some baseline blood tests as well. They may be done by the, by the endocrinologist if that's where the hormones are being prescribed, but we could also consider requesting baseline electrolytes because they might be starting spironolactone and lipids. Uh, estradiol levels, testosterone and LH. And also you might be referring somebody for fertility preservation. Uh, So the local requirements might vary, but generally that requires a blood test for HIV, syphilis and hepatitis B and C. And Rona, can you tell us what the typical feminizing hormone treatments look like? What drugs are used and what a typical regime looks like? and also the safest method of delivery for these drugs? Sure. So for feminizing hormone therapy, we use two medications. So there's an androgen blocker and a form of estrogen. If the patient's had an orchidectomy, then the androgen blocker can be stopped. So the testosterone blocker options are either spironolactone or cyproterone. So I prefer to use spironolactone um, because there are some long-term safety concerns with cyproterone. It seems to increase the risk of developing meningiomas. Um, And a lot of our anecdotal evidence does come from spironolactone because cyproterone isn't licensed in the US. So spironolactone is typically started at 100 milligrams a day, and this can be increased to a maximum of 200 milligrams if the potassium remains normal. And if we're using cyproterone, we would try to get to the lowest effective dose to reduce any possible risks. So you might even be getting as low as 12 and a half milligrams if that was effective. Yeah, so that's the the anti-androgens. So the estrogen, estrogen comes in two forms in New Zealand. We've got patches and tablets. It appears that patches probably carry a lower risk of of venous thromboembolism than the oral estrogen. Uh, There are some small studies which have suggested this. And they're also more suitable if someone has liver function abnormalities because they bypass the liver metabolism. So we typically start estrogen at quite a low dose and just gradually increase it every three months. Uh, It seems that this gradual, slow, uh, incremental increasing uh, optimizes breast development, which is often a sort of big concern for people. So the dose range for the 
estrogen tablets, the ones we use are called or Proganova. Um, they usually start at around uh, one milligram a day um, and go up to a maintenance dose of around two to four milligrams with a maximum of, around, of six milligrams usually. And estrogen patches, um, often Estradopt is used, and they range from 25 microgram patches up to 200 micrograms. They're changed twice a week. And it can be helpful to think of roughly one milligram of Proganova as equivalent to a 25 microgram Estradopt patch. And Rona, how long does it take for the feminizing hormones to take effect? Yeah, so it does take time for these to develop. And so it, it's you know really important when you're starting these hormones to make sure that the patients have a realistic understanding from the outset as to what changes can be expected and how long they take to develop. So the earliest changes that people will see are usually um, effects from the antiandrogens, such as a reduced libido, decrease in spontaneous erections, and that usually starts in the first few months. Then other effects of estrogen include uh, redistribution of body fat, reduced muscle mass, softening of the skin, breast growth, and reduced testicular volume. And they can take sort of three to six months to start appearing, but can, can even take up to three years for the maximum effect for some of those changes. And then the ones that take the longest will be slowing the growth of facial and body hair. That takes much longer. It doesn't start till around six to 12 months. And really, if somebody wants complete hair removal, they will require laser hair removal for that. The voice is unchanged by feminizing GAT, but patients can be referred to speech and language therapy for feminizing hormone therapy. And it's, it's worth noting that breast growth is gradual and that evidence shows that it's usually up to about an A cup or smaller. So having realistic expectations from the outset is, is certainly important. We talked about the reversibility of hormones in episode one, but I just wonder if we can revisit this now that we're talking about GAT. So which hormones are reversible and which ones are not? Yeah, so a person can choose to stop hormone therapy any time they like, and that's absolutely fine, but they do need to know that some of the changes are irreversible. So breast growth is not reversible, um, and it's unlikely that the reduction in sperm production and testicular volume is reversible. So sperm production drops quickly after androgen blockade. So it's very important to discuss fertility and offer everybody fertility preservation before they start feminizing GAT. Talk us through the complications of feminizing hormones, Rona. What do we need to look for and be aware of? Yeah, so in general, feminizing hormone therapy seems to be very safe. So we don't have a lot of really good long-term data to tell us. And remember that we're aiming for normal female levels of hormones. Not We're not... Uh, giving people superphysiological levels of estrogen or anything. There is a potential risk of venous thromboembolism, um, which may be lowered by using estrogen patches. There may be an increased risk in cardiovascular disease and liver dysfunction. Some people can experience changes in mood, but it's impossible to predict whether mood issues are going to improve or deteriorate with estrogen. For most transgender and non-binary people, their mood seems to improve because they're having their gender affirmed, so it can go either way. And what ongoing monitoring do we need to do in primary care and how often should we be monitoring? Yeah, so during the first year, we would usually monitor blood pressure, weight and their blood tests every three months. Um, but once someone's well established on hormones, you usually just need annual monitoring if all is well, you know, six to 12 monthly. So the monitoring we do um, in general practice, it relates to the potential risks of the hormones. So we check their blood pressure and their weight think about cardiovascular risk factors and check the blood tests for lipids, liver function. Um, and if they're on spironolactone, monitor their electrolytes um, after any dose change as well. 
The estrogen and testosterone levels should also be checked annually, but it's uh, important to have a bit of background information to interpret the results that you get. So when you're taking estrogen in the tablet form, that exogenous estrogen isn't well measured by the estrogen assay. So the level we get from the lab, it's not, we don't use that to guide dosages, but we do want to ensure that the level stays in the normal female reference range to avoid supraphysiological estrogen levels. Then the testosterone level depends on which antiandrogen they're, they're taking because cyproterone suppresses the production of testosterone. So levels are typically low when you're looking for a level of about less than two nanomoles per litre. But spironolactone doesn't stop the testosterone production. Instead, it blocks the effect of the testosterone on the tissues. So often when you check the testosterone level in someone on spironolactone, it may still be in a male reference range, but that doesn't mean it's not working or that the dose needs to be changed. So to assess the effectiveness of that, you need to ask about physical anti-androgen effects um, to see if the patient's happy with that. Good points. Thank you. So moving on to masculinization hormones now, what do we need to consider here before we start therapy? Yeah, so one thing to remember as a primary health provider, one way that you can support a transgender or non-binary patient who's awaiting masculinizing hormone therapy is to ask them if they'd like medication to stop their periods. So menstrual periods can be a big source of dysphoria and distress, and it's often an easy and effective thing that we can help with because it does take time for testosterone to stop the bleeding as well. So we can stop periods by using Depo-Provera or Mirena or the contraceptive pill. Um, and you can also use Provera tablets or norethisterone to uh, stop bleeding. But remember that those last two are not contraceptive. Again, testosterone, as uh, we've mentioned, it's contraindicated in pregnancy. So really important to discuss whether they need contraception and that people understand that they can still get pregnant while they're on testosterone, even if their periods have stopped. What physical examination and investigations do we need to consider and complete prior to starting therapy? Yeah, so as with the feminizing gap, we would record baseline blood pressure, height and weight. There's no need for any other physical examinations and, and a genital examination is not indicated. So the baseline blood tests uh, we would do would be the liver function tests, the lipids, complete blood count, LH, estrogen and testosterone levels. And you might want to do an HCG level to make sure they're not pregnant. So tell us about the masculinizing hormone treatments. What are they? So masculinizing GAT is testosterone therapy, and it's most commonly given in an injectable form. Although patches and tablets are available, they're less commonly used. So injectable testosterone is available in three forms, which have differing doses and frequency of administration. So there's depot testosterone, which is given fortnightly, sustenon, which is given every three weeks, and reandron, which is given three monthly. So Riandra needs to be administered by a health professional, but people can be taught to self-inject Sustanon and Depot testosterone. And which is the safest formulation? Why would you choose one over the other? Yeah, there's really no good evidence to differentiate between any of them. In my local area, we typically start people on Depot testosterone and then can move on to one of the other two. But um, there's no safety difference that we know of or, or benefit of one over the other. Sometimes it's personal preference. So how long would it take for a patient to experience changes from these hormones? Effects from testosterone such as acne and redistribution of body fat, vaginal atrophy and clitoral enlargement usually have an onset in the first six months. And periods also usually stop within six months. But some people do continue to have the period and they might require a longer use of a progesterone to stop bleeding. 
Um, it takes longer for other changes to take effect, such as hair growth, scalp hair loss, increased muscle mass and voice changes that they have an onset of about uh, six to 12 months time. And the maximum effect can, can take years. So we talked about reversibility of female hormones and hormones in generally in our first episode. Can we just revisit that here with testosterone use? Yeah, so the changes which are not reversible are the deepening of the voice, the hair growth on the face and body, hair loss at the scalp, clitoral enlargement and vaginal atrophy are all unlikely to be reversible. And complications or side effects that we need to be aware of and look out for in our patients? Yeah, so one of the main ones would be um, polycythemia, which is a risk of testosterone therapy. So it's one of the reasons we monitor the complete blood count. And if their hematocrit is greater than 0.54, we'd consider reducing the testosterone dose. Other possible complications include adverse lipid profile and mood and libido changes um, and obstructive sleep apnea. And also vaginal dryness can occur and using a topical estrogen can relieve uh, discomfort there. So Rona, can you talk us through the ongoing monitoring for these patients, please? What do we need to be doing in primary care? Yeah, so um, as with the feminizing gap, we'll be checking their blood pressure and weight annually, as well as monitoring the blood tests. So we're checking the complete blood count every three months in the first year and thereafter annually to check for polycythemia. And there's also annual monitoring of liver function, lipids and testosterone. So it can take six to nine months even for the testosterone level to stabilize. So there's no need to check that too quickly if someone is on on the standard doses. And it's important to know about the timing of the testosterone measurement, because that depends on which form of injectable testosterone the patient's using. So for reandron therapy, the testosterone should be a trough level measured just before their next injection. But patients who are on sustenon or depo testosterone should have their blood test taken midway between the injections. And we're aiming for a testosterone level in the normal male reference range. And we'd also do a a general check-in with the patients to ask about any concerns, check if they need any other supports. Some patients use a binder to create a male masculine appearing chest, and they might be experiencing discomfort or breathing difficulties. Um, And it's good to remember that uh, there are some physiotherapists who are experienced in this area and can really help. So moving away from hormones now onto gender-affirming surgery, this may be necessary for some patients to alleviate their body dysphoria or to allow them to live fully and authentically in their gender. I wonder if you can talk us through what's available in New Zealand, any issues in New Zealand and the funding around this. Yes, access to to gender-affirming surgery varies throughout the country and so it really does depend on where you're living. So so surgery, which may be available on the public system in some areas, includes top surgery, uh, as it's known, which is a mastectomy and and creation of a male chest. Um, And hysterectomy and orchidectomy can be uh, accessed publicly. Usually the surgeries require a psychological assessment before the surgeon will see them. Um, And then gender reassignment surgery, which is sometimes called bottom surgery, that's managed by the Ministry of Health through something called the High Cost Treatment Pool. So you need to check your local health pathway for the referral guidelines in your area. We've currently got one surgeon in New Zealand with expertise in these complicated surgeries. And the wait time, the waiting list is extraordinarily long, you know, just really sort of inaccessible. But many patients do choose to go on the list anyway, just to, you know, just in case things change or and also to send a message to 
to the government really that there is a demand for them. To access most of these surgeries, patients are required to have been on continuous hormone therapy for 12 months. Um, and as I said, often they need a psychological assessment as well. And then there are other surgeries which are not uh, publicly funded, uh, sort of facial surgeries or breast augmentation, for example. And if we could wave a wand and have an ideal model, what do you think this would look like for our transgender patients? Yeah, so I do think that primary care is an ideal place for gender-affirming care to be centred. You know, as GPs, we're experts in treating normal life issues, monitoring medications, coordinating referrals to other services, and providing supportive, holistic care, taking into account physical and psychological needs. You know, transgender people aren't sick and most of their non-surgical care can be provided in primary care without secondary care assessments and referrals. So in theory, most patients can be managed by their GP using an informed consent model of care and working closely with others in an MDT approach when more support is needed. And this would also free up space on secondary care waiting lists. But in order to do that, we'd need a whole, a whole lot more funding and, and training and resourcing to be able to do that. And ideally, DHBs would provide clear referral pathways for timely access to gender-affirming healthcare, including puberty blockers, hormone therapies, fertility preservation, voice therapy, counselling, mental health support, and gender-affirming surgeries. Thank you, Rona. That's something for us to all work towards. So to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? Yeah, so I would say that you don't have to know everything and all the ins and outs of this type of care, but you do need to be able to provide non-judgmental, respectful and kind care. Transgender and non-binary patients have often experienced distress, stigma and discrimination. So be kind, listen to your patient and their needs and make sure you know your local referral pathway so that you can support your patient to access the care they need to affirm their gender. Use people's names and pronouns correctly and be an ally to help them access gender affirming care. Have some good systems in place for ongoing health monitoring and and don't forget cancer screening recalls. Thank you, Rona. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log this podcast on your dashboard as a reflection of learning form is no longer required. Thank you for listening.